Father, I'm so grateful uh, to be with the church this morning. And Lord, we just ask your blessings over this time uh, as we open up your word. And uh, Lord, what grace it is in our lives that we do not have to guess about who you are. We do not have to guess about how you feel about us. We don't have to guess about your character. We don't have to guess about your plans and your desires, but Lord, you have provided all of that in your word. And so Lord, we're grateful that we can come together this morning, open your word and, and hear truth from you. And Lord, I pray very specifically this morning that as we read from Hosea 11, that Lord, you would do a work in our hearts of deconstructing some false perceptions we might have about you. Uh, maybe we grew up in the church and just over time we've developed beliefs or a certain image or view of you that's not healthy or not biblical. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, you would begin to construct a true image of who you are in our hearts. I pray this morning that every person who's listening to your word read this morning would encounter your love, your fatherly love for us in a new and life-changing way. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, have you ever had an experience before with someone, a first impression where you kind of got a perception of, of someone and it negatively shaped your view of them. And so that kind of impacted the way you viewed that person for a long time until one day you realized you were wrong when you actually got to know this person better. Uh, let me give you an example. So one summer when I was in middle school, uh, sixth or seventh grade, I don't remember, um, I was headed off to summer camp. And there was another family that had moved into town, and they had a son my age, and he was also headed to the same summer camp, and that mom talked to my mom, and so my mom came to me and said, all right, Alan, you have to be friends with this guy. So I did what every kind of 13-year-old, I don't know every 13-year-old, I did what I did at 13 years old, is I vowed to stay away from him, because my mom said I had to be friends with this guy, and I, I didn't want to do that. So what that encounter did is it shaped my perception of this guy. And so when I first met him, this was the guy that my mom said I had to be friends with, so I tried to avoid him. But what happened at camp? Uh, we became best friends. Uh, we stayed best friends through middle school, high school, college. We're still great friends to this day. I was texting him the other day, right? I, I had an experience that created a bias in me, in my mind, against this person, but I was wrong when I got to know them. I realized I was, I was wrong. So this is what psychologists would call cognitive bias. It's when someone constructs their own subjective social reality based on their past perceptions and not on objective input. Uh, maybe another example, maybe you move into a new neighborhood and the first time you encounter your neighbor is he's out in the front lawn yelling at his kids. And you think to yourself, man, this guy's unhinged. You know, this guy, he's a terrible dad. 
He would be a bad influence on my family. And so you have this negative perception of him and that stops you from engaging with this guy for maybe a long time. You, you don't get to know him because this is the view you have of him. Until later, maybe you actually do get to know him and you realize, man, this is, this is a great guy. You just caught him on a bad day. You, you didn't know that he stepped on a Lego for the eighth time that week and he just lost it on his kids. Right? All of us have cognitive bias in many different areas of our life. And it can impact our relationships with other people. It can impact our morale in the workplace or our relationships with our family. Many other things. But one area that I have seen this impact people probably most profoundly is in their view of God. Uh, People who have had experiences in their life that have left them with a perception of God in their minds that is not true of the God of the Bible. Maybe you grew up in a home that went to church identified themselves as Christians, aligned themselves with Christian values, but it was not a good home. Maybe in that home you experienced some type of abuse. Maybe your parents were absent. Maybe you realized early on that the faith of the family was for appearance only, so you acted like it at church, but when you went home at the end of the day and the door closed and it was just your family inside, it was really more like hell. That will shape your perception of God. Maybe you've had an experience in a church that was unhealthy, where there's a lot of conflict and gossip. That will shape your experience and your perception of God. Maybe you've been shamed in a church. That will impact your perception of God. Maybe over time, you've always carried this sense of guilt for, for not living up to the standard that you ought to as a follower of Christ and your prayers are primarily comprised of apologizing to God and promising him that you'll do better next time. That's gonna impact your perception of God. And this morning for our Thanksgiving service, what I wanna do is I wanna stoke gratitude inside of our hearts by constructing a true biblical image of God for us. I want to show you the character of the God of the Bible, and I want you to contrast that with the perception of God maybe you've always had. Because I believe that for many of us today, we need our perception of God to be healed. And to do this, I want us to study uh, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And so let me give you a bit of a context, and then we can read it. Hosea is one of God's prophets, and he's prophesying during the time of the divided kingdoms. He had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea was prophesying to them because of their unfaithfulness to God. So God made a covenant with his people. He was going to bless them. They are to obey his word, but God's people were not obeying. They were being unfaithful to the covenant that they had with God. And so, in fact, what they were doing is they stopped worshiping God as God had told them to in his word, and they started worshiping pagan idols. And so the book of Hosea is famous for its first three chapters because God instructs Hosea, his prophet, to marry this woman named Gomer, who's a prostitute. And Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. 
But Hosea continues to to love her because of their marriage covenant. And he eventually redeems her. He stays true to the covenant that they have to one another. And so this is a, a prophecy, right? The book of Hosea compares Gomer's infidelity to Hosea to Israel's infidelity to God. Even though Israel is unfaithful, God remains faithfully committed to his people and the covenant that he makes with them. And listen, I believe that for for many followers of Christ, uh, they have a perception of God in their lives that the more unfaithful they are in their walk with Christ, uh, the more God distances himself from them. And the more faithful they are, the more consistent, the more disciplined they are in their walks with Christ, the more God draws near to them. We say things if we haven't been diligently spending time in the Bible like, man, I am far from God. But the book of Hosea depicts for us an image of God that although we might be all over the place when it comes to our faithfulness, God never wavers in his faithfulness to us. He never wavers in his nearness to us, his fatherly love for us. And so later in Hosea, in chapter 11, we get this beautiful description of God's perfect fatherly love for us. And I want to study this chapter together as a way of experiencing God's love together this morning. And so let's read Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Let me read that for us. says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim's another name for Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will war like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Here's what I want to do is I want to break this passage down into four different sections. And in each section, I want us to look at a different aspect of God's 
love for us. And so here's, here's number one. First aspect of God's love for us I want you to know is this, is God wants you. God wants you. I mean, have you ever thought about the idea that God wants a relationship with you and the current you, not the future you? Our relationship with God is not this cold, religious relationship where he just gives us rules, we follow the rules, and that is the parameters of the relationship. No, God wants to be with you. And I know this because God is the one who took the first step to come and get you. Look at verses one to four with me again. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. They were running away from me. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Hosea is referring here to God rescuing Israel from their slavery in Egypt. When God's people were in bondage, it was God who came, broke their chains, and led them to freedom. It was God who had the idea, it was God who made the plan, and it was God who initiated that plan. And even though the people of God were still complaining and still being unfaithful, while God was in the midst of rescuing them, he still wanted them. Israel didn't even know it, but they were the recipients of God's tender care. Just look at this language. It was I who taught you to walk. It was I that lifted you up. I'm the one that led you with cords of kindness, with bands of love. These people were in slavery in Egypt, bound up. But God said, no, I'm the one who comes and eases your yoke. And I bent down and, and fed them. As many of you know, my wife and I are foster care parents for Fairfax County. And we, we don't have a child with us now. Um, we did for the first part of the year. Um, and our youngest daughter, Christy, we adopted through the foster care system. And uh, doing this means that we have an understanding of the trauma that many children face in our area. And, and also we have an understanding of the many kids who right now are waiting for an adoptive family. Um, there's many kids on a list right now who, uh, for whatever reason, there's, there's no one willing to adopt them. And they're called waiting children. Uh, many of kids get into this list because uh, they get older uh, or uh, they have behavioral issues or, or health issues. And it's a lot for a family to take that on. It's a lot of sacrifice. And so it takes a long time to find an adoptive family for them. But the reality is that many of these kids have developed these behavioral issues because they've never experienced a stable home with parents that love them faithfully, even when they are hard to love. And in Hosea's depiction of God rescuing Israel from Egypt, and listen, in your own life, if you are a follower of Christ, what God has done is like a family coming to a child who has been waiting for years for someone to lovingly take him or her in and saying, you can forever be a part of our family. 
You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself. This was our idea. It's going to be done at our expense. We want you in our home. We want to give you our love. We want to be the ones who raise you up, who give you what you need, take care of you. You can't mess this up because we want you. Not the future version of who you might be, not a child that might fulfill all my dreams. No, I want right now the current version of you. And that is what God has done for you in Christ because he loves you and he wants you. He, at the expense of his son, Jesus, on the cross, made a way that he could have us in his family be reconciled to us. And he did this without us prompting him. He did this not because we proved our faithfulness to him. No, in love, he adopts us into his family. Uh, Paul explains this so clearly to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As a follower of Christ, you have been giving every blessing. What is that? Even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Many of us think of God as a harsh authority who is frustrated with us because we just can't get it right. Uh, maybe we envision a father who regrets bringing us home, who regrets adopting us into his family. We've become too much for him to handle. But that's a perception of God that needs to be tossed out. That's a perception of God that just needs to be thrown away and it needs to be replaced with an image of God that we see from the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Jesus tells a parable of a son in Luke 15 who demands his whole inheritance and he goes off with that money and he just blows it all in wild living. He ends up homeless and with nothing. And the son decides to move back home because he figures my, my dad's never going to take me back as a son, but he'll definitely take me back as a slave. He believed that his own unfaithfulness to his dad caused his father to disown him. Even though he disowned his dad, he figured his dad would also disown him. And on his journey home, when he expected to encounter the anger and the shame of his dad, look at what happened. Luke 15, verses 20 to 24, it says, And the son arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father, not even listening to his son, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, he's alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Listen to this. Picture this in your head right now. A father sprinting out of pure joy and compassion because his son or daughter is home. Picture that right now. A father sprinting through the fields at his son and daughter because they're home. That's the image of God that you need to have of your father in heaven. Second aspect of God's love I think we see in Hosea is this, number two. God will discipline you. He will discipline you. Verses five to seven. God says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me and though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. You may go, man, that one's not as cozy as the first one. But see, I'm talking about God's perfect love for us. And true love doesn't sweep problems under the rug. Maybe you grew up in a home like that where issues were ignored and problems were just swept under the rug and it just festers. You know, parents who truly love their kids discipline their kids. Right? On one side, it's unloving to ignore a child's unloving or disrespectful behavior. On the other side, it's unloving to harshly punish your children out of anger as if they owe you something. But it's truly loving to discipline your kids in order to teach them what is good for them. And Hosea prophesies that due to Israel's unfaithfulness, God's going to allow them to be defeated by the Assyrians. And as we'll learn in verses 8 and 9 later, this is not God giving up on Israel, but this is God disciplining Israel so that they will learn that it's for their good and their joy to be faithful to God and it's destructive in their life to worship idols. Listen, God does not want you to sin. It's an assault on God's glory when we sin. It's destructive to ourselves and to others. He commands us to be faithful. And sin does produce wrath and anger in God. He cannot let it go. He cannot ignore it. God will not sweep sin under the rug because that would be against his character. He is not a passive or absent father. He will deal with sin properly. But in God's love, he sent Jesus to come and stand in our place and absorb his wrath for our sin. So, so that we would stand before God as holy and righteous, not as sinful. And so what that means is that God no longer has wrath over our sin. And so he can now deal with us as his sons and daughters whom he wants to lead into a life of joy and faithfulness. And listen, that leadership will include discipline. Loving discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom their father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. There are times when God allows you to go through hard circumstances and to face the consequences of your actions. But I think the perception of God that we have when we go through hard times is that God is punishing us. Where he sends hard things into our life as a form of retribution or some kind of bad karma. Maybe this was your experience with your parents. They took their anger out on you instead of lovingly disciplining you. When you did something wrong, they gave you the silent treatment. Treated you as if you didn't belong to the family. And our loving father, he disciplines us not because he's angry or because he'll disown us, but precisely because he loves us. And the cross of Jesus Christ declares that God has no more anger towards us. There's no more punishment to be had against us. Any discipline in your life is done with love. It is controlled. And God has a plan for you to grow in joy and faithfulness through it. And that's what the next aspect of God's love is all about. Number three. It's this, that... You warm God's heart. You warm God's heart. Look at verses eight and nine with me. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are two cities that God had destroyed in the past. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The reason why God does not rain his wrath down upon us is because Jesus came, took the wrath of God in our place. But the reason God engineered the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first place is because his children warm his heart and he has compassion on us. That's what it says. I mean, if you're a parent, you know what it's like to have compassion on your children and for your heart to be warm towards them even when they mess up. Uh, the other day, my wife uh, had to discipline my son Leland for something. and She sat him down on the stairs, was explaining to him the consequences that he was going to have to receive for, for what he did. And my son looks at my wife in the eyes and, and, and says to her, but, but mommy, Jesus already took all of the consequences. <laughs> but what happened in that moment? Man, that warmed our heart towards him. I mean, this was a teaching moment, right? Well, well, buddy, Jesus did take the punishment that we deserve for our sin, but our sin still has consequences so that we can learn and, and grow. It, it wasn't a lesson he wanted to learn at the time. But, but even though he still got his consequence, it didn't mean that our hearts weren't warm towards him. We want our son to grow in joy. And so for many of us, when we mess up, when we're not faithful, when 
We're not consistent. We picture God in heaven as shaking his head in annoyance at us, frustrated at us because we can't get it right. A cold heart towards us. I think it seems like in Christianity today, we believe that when people come to faith in Christ, they should instantly be fully grown, mature followers of Jesus rather than a spiritual infant. Immediately, you should love the Bible, know how to read it and do it daily. And you should know immediately how to obey all of God's word. And you should immediately be an expert in theology and learn to love the church. You know, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, those should be fully present in your life overnight. And if not, God's annoyed at you. He's frustrated. You know, if you're, if you're helping a little 12-month-old learn to walk, I mean, what do you do? You stand over that child and you kind of stabilize them and hold on to them, you cheer them on. Maybe you have someone sitting out in front a few steps out to catch him. And then you eventually let him go to see if he'll take a few steps and, and fall into the other person. And what do you do when he takes those first steps? Man, you cheer. You say, great job, man, you're doing so good. Keep going, keep doing it. What do you not say? That was only two steps. Why can't you walk more than that? And what if the child doesn't make it? He, he just, he tries to take one step and then falls flat on his face. But what do you do? You cheer him on. You did a great job for trying. You're so brave. Keep doing it. I know you can do it the next time. And you pick him back up and you get him all ready to try it again. What do you, what do you not do? You don't go, you idiot. Why can't, why, why can't you walk? You just fell on your face. Do you know how ridiculous that looked? You don't. Say that to a child, but listen, for many of us, as we grow and as we mess up and as we are trying to be faithful to God and we're growing in our faithfulness to God, this is our perception of God, that he's standing over us and he's mocking us or he's frustrated us because we gave it a shot. But remember verse three. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms. They did not know that I healed them. See, I believe that for many of us, our Christian walk would be marked by so much more joy if we would just take the perception of God as being coldly mad at us for not being able to take a few steps on our own. And we would replace it with an image of God who is warmly cheering for us, coaching us, teaching us, picking us back up, so we can give it another try. He sent Jesus so he could lavish his grace on us, and look at this, so he could raise us patiently as his kids. He sent Jesus so he could lavish his grace on us and raise us patiently as his children. You warm his heart, and he is patient, Father. And that leads to our final aspect of God's love for us, and that's this. Number four, God will keep you. He will keep you. Look at verses 10 to 11. God says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. 
and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Hosea is giving Israel the good news that although they have been exiled from their promised land that God had given to them, God will one day allow them to return. And for all of us as followers of Jesus, we are in a bit of an exile experience here in this world. We're God's children who belong in God's perfect kingdom, but it's not fully here yet. But God has promised us that we, he will bring us home at the end of this life for all of eternity. God promises to keep his children within his love and his family until it's time to come home. Think about this. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you are not still a follower of Jesus to this day because of you and your strength. You are still a follower of Jesus because of him. He has kept you in his love. And he promises that he will do that. Jude chapter, well, Jude verse 24. Jude says, now to him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If you are a child of God, that will never change. You can't change your identity. And if you're a child of God, then you are a child of God. My son Leland, right? he's a, my biological son, he's my son. My daughter Christy, she's adopted. She is my daughter. That's never going to change. They are stuck with me. I will always be their daddy, even if they mess up, no matter how much. And so if you didn't do anything to get your salvation, if it was all through Jesus Christ, and listen, there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. He stepped towards you first and he will keep you in his family. You are his if you follow Jesus. And that's not gonna change. So this morning, here's what I want us to do. I just want you to think about what we've talked about this morning. I want you to think about the reality that God wants you, that he is a loving father who does discipline us. I want you to think about how you warm his heart, and I want you to think about how he will always keep you in his love. And I want you to contrast that image of God with maybe the one that you've always had of God or one that you struggle with. When you go to pray on your own, who is it that you picture you're praying to? Where does your perception of God need to be more aligned with the perfect love of our perfect Father in heaven? And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to come forward to the communion table. And I want you to take the bread, bread that has been broken to remind us of the broken body of Christ. And let that bread remind you that God wanted you so much that he purchased you through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And let it also remind you that any discipline in your life is just that, loving discipline, because Jesus' body was broken under God's wrath, so we would not have to endure that. And I want you to take the cup. A cup of this deep, dark, red juice that reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. And let it remind you that because of the blood of Jesus, it has cleansed you from all of your sin, that you are now one of God's children and you're, he, I'm sorry, you warm his heart. 
And let it remind you that it's because of the blood of Jesus that you will forever be a part of God's family. And that will never change because he has purchased you with his blood. You're his. Come to the communion table this morning and let it begin to realign, to reconstruct who you see God as, as your loving father in heaven. Let me just say this. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not sure if you believe in Jesus or if you don't, this is the God of the Bible. Maybe you've had experiences in your life maybe past church experiences or experiences with other Christians or whoever it is that have given you a wrong perception of God. But this is a true, right, biblical view of God. And I want you to know that this morning. And I want you to know that you can become a child of God just by placing your faith in Jesus and knowing that God wants you. He wants you in his family and he has made a way in and through Christ. But church, you have a perfect father in heaven who perfectly loves you. So what I want to do is I want to pray for you right now. That you would believe that. And that this communion table will remind you of what Christ has done so that we can be children of God. So let me pray for all of us. I want us to spend some time reflecting on what we learned today and then we'll enjoy communion together. Let me pray. God, you are our Father. And I think it's probably accurate to say that not everyone in this room has always seen you or viewed you as a loving Father. And I don't know what experiences people have had here that, Lord, has shaped their perception of you. Maybe those have been bad experiences in a church or with another person who claims to be a Christian or, or whoever it is. Maybe that person grew up with an abusive or absent or manipulative father. Whatever it is, Lord. Maybe it's just our own insecurity that just refuses to believe that you would actually love us and you would actually sacrifice for us. And that you would actually want us. Maybe that's just something we've never even allowed ourselves to even entertain. Whatever it is, Lord. Pray that you would just completely demolish those views of you in their hearts. That right now, they would know that they do have a loving Father in heaven who wants them who delights in them, who intimately and specifically created them. Lord, if there's anyone here who has a perception of you as being annoyed and frustrated at them, Lord, would you replace that in their minds and in their hearts with a view of you as a loving father who is trying to teach them to grow and to walk and to have joy. Pray, Lord, as we come forward to the communion table this morning and we take of the bread and we take of the cup that we would be reminded that we would remember the cross of Jesus Christ 
and the sacrifice that he endured so you could be our father. So all of those things that we said today, Lord, about you would be true. Restore us this morning, Lord. And if it would be your will, would you create new life this morning? We love you, Lord. And we ask that during this time, as we just reflect on what we've learned from your word, that, Lord, you would meet us in that place. Construct in our hearts a proper image of who you are. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.